In Series 4, Episode 4 of Raw Talent, I am speaking with luxury brand consultant Michelle Mulcahy. After graduating with degrees in art history and fashion design, her career started in 2006 with iconic designer Roland Ray and progressed through several roles from EA slash office manager in 2006-2007 to PR, event management and special projects in 2008 and 2009, followed by general manager for five years from 2009 to 2013 and ultimately managing director from 2013 to 2018. Quite the progression. This breadth of knowledge and expertise positioned Michelle with the opportunity to understand the successes, challenges and growing pains of the business and how to get past them. She is fascinated by making a dream become reality and has the imagination, determination and experience to build this synergy within a developing business. As a consultant, her goal is to help founders and owners build successful and dynamic companies that inspire both teams and consumers to carve out new niches within their respective industries. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Raw Talent. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you as well. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. So as we were saying, it's a bit of a dismal day, but I'm hoping it's going to brighten up because I have to go into town this afternoon. Well, I had a similar experience yesterday. I mean, the the weather in England, I always say, is kind of bipolar. Um, I grew up in LA, so I didn't understand that weather could be so inconsistent, just in general, really. Um, LA, everything's, you know, 80 degrees which no one will understand because it's American. But um, yeah, just like lovely inclement weather. I didn't understand that it could get dark at three in the afternoon until I moved here. So (laughs) wonderful things about lovely. Um, But it did in the evening yesterday. um, So hopefully you'll get lucky. Yes, I'm hoping so. It's suddenly starting to look slightly brighter, but very gray skies. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So I'm going to start off just by asking what inspired you to study both art history and fashion design. So cast your mind back and tell us um, kind of what led to you studying both those subjects. Well, I mean, it sounds probably odd in the question um, in hindsight, but I guess for me, it was pretty natural. It wasn't really art history or fashion design. Um, when when I was growing up, I, I thought it was going to be fashion or law, really. Mm. That was the choice. But I interned this summer at basically the movie Aaron Brockovich. I don't know. I mean, you'll yes. probably remember but um, some younger people won't. Um, but it was this class act. It's a film. You should look it up. Julia Roberts. Um, but it was this class action firm that actually was in L.A., um, which is you know where I grew up. And so I interned there. Um, it's class action lawsuits. And there was this realization where they told me that, you know, the female lawyers had to wear tights um, in the courtroom. And it sounds like such a simple minor thing, but it really put me off um, this kind of like unnecessarily restrictive environment. So, you know, obviously there were other reasons, but I just, yeah, I, I was like, mm, I don't know, maybe not for me. Whereas like all the design work um, that I was involved with was really inspiring. Um, you know, that kind of spark of imagination that you kind of have when you're balancing commercial with creative, you know, which is different than art. You know, it is a business still, just really was fulfilling for me. Um, and it kind of, I'm like equally left and right and it just kind of fulfilled that balance, I guess, for me. And I thought it was something I could do for a long time rather than maybe getting bored um, or burnt out, you know, the time I was 30. I mean, this is my young person hat thinking, oh, burnt out by 30 was, you know, ancient. But yeah, so really, I think I did a lot of like experimentation and testing alongside my first degree. So my parents, kind of like many parents, were just like, there's no way you're going straight into design. Like that's just not happening. Mm-hmm. So got the practical degree first and it ended up being art history. And I really took it purely because I genuinely enjoyed it. It was never intended to be vocational. I didn't want to go and, and be do a PhD. I didn't want to become an art historian. But it's funny how those interests do kind of go full circle because after I left Roland Murray, one of the first projects I became involved in was as a trustee of the Warburg Institute, which it probably is very cerebral. No one will understand, but it's this kind of laboratory and um, institute, you know, studying for cultural memory. I mean, it has very strong roots in the development of art history as we know it today. So 
you know, the degree wasn't for nothing. Um, it's come full circle. But yeah, that's kind of the backstory on that. Really interesting. I and mean, it's amazing how one thing leads to others. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's funny how you have no view at the time. You never really know where things are going. But fascinating story. Tell us about your early career and how you got started after university. Well, I mean, I always had this kind of like, I guess you could say these side hustles, this like trying things out. As a kid, like before tall sizes exist, I learned to sew. So, you know, I was like 12. Mm. So I wanted trousers that I'm tall that actually, you know, hit my ankles. So that's kind of where I started. And then while I was doing my degrees, I was kind of testing ideas out. And so I guess you could say my early career was a bit of a process of elimination to see what I liked and kind of was good at. And luckily those things came pretty quickly rather than, you know, a lot of things I didn't like, but I kind of, it started really. So while I was studying in New York, I did a design internship at Calvin Klein, very lucky. And, and loads of people there were British trained, which what inspired me to come to London to study. But I also then did about a year and a half, two years um, supporting a designer at Coach Leatherwear. So two very big corporate companies, but these were all in design. And then because of that experience, after I graduated, I kind of went over across the Atlantic to study design properly. I'd actually been offered a, a job at Coach Leatherwear, but I kind of felt that I would be apologizing for my lack of a degree and my lack of kind of proper experience um, if I didn't do it. So I was lucky enough while I came over here to study to again intern. And I guess I mentioned this just because for me, in a way, those internships were, I don't want to say more important than my education, but I guess I probably weighted them that way. I, I liked reality rather than kind of studying um, so much. And one of the differences between New York and London was just that you have a lot more access to designers. You literally work hand in hand with designers um, in London rather than being in these much bigger corporations. So mm -hmm. I got to work alongside some of the UK's like best design talent, like Giles Deacon, Ben and Ed of Meetham Kirchhoff, Jonathan Saunders and Roland Murray. So, you know, the timing of that internship with Roland was really fortuitous. I supported the PR team. So it kind of came out of design, which obviously then was, that's what I ended up doing was kind of working more on the business side, but mm -hmm. I was collection um, as an intern. And that was this real, obviously, magic moment for him where um, it catapulted him to international fame recognition. And shortly thereafter, I was walking along the King's Road and I just saw that Evening Standard headline, which, I mean, you may even remember where it just said Galaxy Dress Designer Resigns. Like, it was this huge shock that he left at the pinnacle of his career. And then within about six to nine months of that, it was right after I graduated, he was relaunching his business with Simon Fuller. And I graduated, like I said, I got a call from the team and I kept in touch with them, which in all honesty, I can't overstate the importance of both yes. keeping in touch with people, you know, that you know, and have worked with, but also like developing your network. And, you know, I met with him, he hired me on the spot and yeah, I went away with the job and started up setting his studio up. So, you know, long-winded I am a bit, but that's really how my career transitioned from kind of university to a job. And yeah, it was really interesting, but really lucky at the same time. Absolutely. So you joined Roland Murray as office manager and executive assistant in 2006 and stepped into a PR, event management and special projects role in 2008 before becoming general manager from 2009 to 2013, when you then became the managing director until 2018. What was the driving force behind your progression through the business? Um, I mean, it's a big question, really, because um, it's a long space of time, obviously, yes. 12 but I mean, if I kind of called out a few things, you know, it's probably a combination of timing, um, which I mentioned before, you know, joining a business as, as the first employee is always going to put you in a good position to grow. You know, there's just more opportunities for growth. Mm -hmm. So you know, even as a, just a percentage, there's more opportunity to kind of grow in that situation. I would also say a combination of kind of humility and ambition, you know, which is a, maybe a strange combination, but there's kind of always, we always talked about this willingness to touch the ceiling and the floor. And I've always kind of talked about that in recruitment as well. You know, in small businesses, everyone wears many hats, including the owners, never afraid to put myself up for a new task. Even if I was, you know, 
terrified, in all honesty, um, of failing or you know making a mistake. Less than a year in, when I was working at Roland, um, I covered our global sales director's maternity leave, you know, which was a huge step up and terrifying. But I didn't mess thing up too badly. Um, and I got to travel the world. So, I mean, you know, amazing. But there's that willingness to kind of just put yourself out there, I guess. I mean, curiosity and passion obviously help genuinely loving what you do, wanting to know about all aspects of it. I am, I say curiosity, it's probably nosiness to a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> And then the one word that pretty much everyone that I know is most often used by my kind of colleagues um, and friends is tenacity, Eat to pivot and maneuver and kind of find the edge and push something through and just get it done. I guess probably really indicative of my personality, um, but without above and beyond everything else is that endorsement from senior management along the way. Roland in particular gave me opportunities and space to grow. And without that, you know, I wouldn't have, you, you can't grow if, people don't let you. And so over that time, we really developed a mutual trust and respect that allowed us to kind of move our respective areas of the business forward. But above all, I treated it like it was my own business. And I don't think anyone teaches you that. It just kind of happens sometimes. And yeah, but as we grew, I was conscious of where we as a team, including myself, um, lacked expertise. There was no way with my experience and background um, that that I would ever know everything that we needed to know. So where we lacked expertise, we hired and where possible, we invested in developing, you know, some of the teams. So some people, you know, we set on courses, et cetera, where we really believed in them and they wanted that. So, you know, we developed a team of brilliant people. And so all of those things, you know, really were the driving force. And in the end, my task became, you know, make it clear what we're aiming for rather than executing everything. Mm -hmm. But yeah, a combination of all of those things, really. Interesting. What did you seek to achieve as the journey unfolded, particularly in responding to an ever-evolving market? It's hard for me sometimes because it's such a long space of time. But if I could pick out a few things, I think we always tried, and I still try, you know, even outside of kind of the Roland Murray experience I had to honour the talent, you know, of the person, of the people that you're working with. So Roland, I always try to honor his talent and the product that he created, but while also treating the customer with respect, there was definitely a, a space and time where I felt, you know, I don't want to say 2008, you know, just a while back where I think sometimes, you know, the customer was like, you're kind of overcharging me, you know, like things like that. There were just things mm-hmm. that I didn't felt actually treated that customer with respect, you know, so we wanted a very honest product that performed. So we always sought to serve the customer and the product really, I mean, I think that was Roland's product anyways, that was his onus, um, but to like protect, serve, enhance, empower. Um, There was this great quote from this top stylist in America called Jesse Garza. And he always said the client who wears Roland felt like they were wearing armor. So it is that idea of being protected and empowered at the same time, all of that. But I mean, specific things that we did as the customer's lifestyle changed from kind of maybe wearing a dress all the time, there were these shifts that we noticed. So we focused on diversifying the product assortment and also to maximize sell-through. So most people think of Roland as a dress designer, you know, still to this day. But really strategically, we worked on developing that product range um, alongside those natural shifts that we saw in the market to separates. So, you know, certainly by the time I left, but for a long time before that, over 50% of the sales were in separates, you know, broadening the customer base by establishing varieties of volumes, you know, and silhouettes that weren't those traditional fitted styles. Yeah. That, and actually, let me interject. And then, of course, dresses yeah. came back on trend. <laughs> I mean, there's always that that cycles, right? Um, there's yeah. so many. There's so many designers now, young designers um, that I see where I can see elements of, you know, Roland's technique and draping skill, but they're a new generation and they're interpreting in a different way. So it's it's fascinating. But yeah, you, you have to evolve and change and listen and otherwise you kind of get passed out. So, you know, if we hadn't evolved in terms of um, our product assortment, we would have missed out in a way on those 50% of sales. Mm. And we would have, you know, evolved. It's just, I think the thing that we always had was the perception. There was a gap between the perception and the reality of the business, which I did want um, and tried to kind of refocus and promote those other items. I think the customer knew, but, you know, I don't necessarily know that the industry necessarily recognized it. You know, you can always be that way. I think most people that really make a real business have this one thing they're known for, and that can be a blessing and a curse. You know, some other areas that I'm really proud of that we did um, over that time was, you 
like I said, the product always had integrity and purpose. And we were really early on in expanding our sizing strategy. And again, I don't people necessarily always realize this. Um, a lot of people think of Roland as a, like for skinny women. I've, I've heard that a lot, you know, tall Amazon. Really? I've heard that. And I don't know if it's because they were speaking to me and I happened to be really tall, but I was like, no, not at all. You know, average customer height was like five, three, five, four. And also we always made a pretty decent size range. So we had always made a six to 16 UK sizing, but we saw a demand um, and opportunity in larger sizing, um, you know, online, but also in store, I mean, in America, et cetera. And we expanded Mm -hmm. to a UK 20 which is like a US 16. Um, But I think the thing that's interesting about that journey is not just, okay, we did it. It's how we did it. So we actually brought in fit models across the full size range. So literally size six, UK six, two or 20 every single size in between. And we took a cross section of our best-selling styles, you know, the fitted dress, we had the skinny trouser called the Mortimer, the fitted jackets, et cetera, et cetera, like all, all like that range that we had. And we fit it on every size. So we had every size made and we fit it and ensured that we could kind of honor the design and offer a product that delivered the same level of service across all those sizes. And there were some that failed. You know, there were some that were like, this doesn't work across mm-hmm. the full and therefore we didn't offer it um, because we wanted to kind of maintain our integrity and the purpose of those products. So that's kind of why I, I'm quite proud of that, but the way that we did it, because some people just, you know, make a very kind of a whole different collection and we didn't want to do that. So, yeah. Absolutely. No, that makes sense. What are the standout achievements from your experience with Roland, would you say? Um, I mean, oh God, there's so many. Probably the, the shift from being... A wholesale business. I mean, there was a stage where we were 100% retail, um, to kind of launch and expanding retail bricks and mortar, um, you know, New York, um, London, and then like a franchise in Dubai. Um, it was a great learning experience for me. Um, and it's something we we're really proud of. There was also an experiential element of the New York store. We had an apartment space, which I mean, and, and London, to be fair, but we launched it first properly in in New York, but then also establishing and relaunching these kind of successive e-commerce sites, that journey of digitization where we kind of achieved double and triple digit percentage growth was, it's just a really um, amazing learning experience for me. And it was just interesting because there were so many challenges. And at the time that we were doing it, it was still relatively new. And we, you know, we didn't, the, the expertise wasn't there the way it is now, where you could just yeah. kind of call people to kind of sort it out and, and they've done it before. Um, I mean, we launched our first e-commerce site with Farfetch on their partner platform back, I don't even know when, but a while back. And the sales were so tiny that for two and a half years, which are two years, which was like our contract with them. And um, we really struggled. We, we, there was points where we just thought maybe we can't sell online, but logically it didn't kind of make sense because we're, one of our largest clients was Netaporte and Brown's online and all. So we could sell online. So why weren't we able to sell online? And Mm -hmm. we struggled with that. And we kind of had these two successive relaunches where, like I said, we had these these huge growths, you know, 100% growth and 60% growth where we we were moved platforms and then eventually ended up on Shopify Plus. Um, And of course, there were loads of other functionality changes along the way. But we went from like 3% of turnover to more like 10, 12% of turnover being online, which at that stage was the real benchmark. And that was a very targeted decision to invest in e-commerce and focus on it. So to get to the end goal of, uh, and hit those targets that we wanted to hit was really, you know, I was very proud of it. I learned a huge amount along the way. And what was really interesting was what really cracked it and where we started believing in ourselves and our ability. And it was a real process of elimination. And it took a good, I would say, six months after we left the Farfetch platform. And we did that typical thing where you relaunch it and maybe you do too many new things at the same time and unravel one by one, take (laughs) one away, one away, one away and figure out where the real problems are, what's holding you back. And it was this moment where, and I won't name any names, but we basically turned off this very innovative, best in class, you know, payment service provider that was super, you know, swishy and all of these wonderful functions. We turned it off and turned off. And I will say this sage pay, we turned on sage pay, which is, you know, a much more established player, and literally overnight, the sales turned on. Can I tell you something? I've heard that yeah. story so many times. It's really interesting, isn't it? That's something, that's the theme that pops up. I think it shocks you how simple yeah. 
but how much these individual elements matter. And so for me, it's again, it's one of those things that I remember and it, it informs the way that I approach, you know, new problems that I experience. So yeah, you know, there's that, um, that whole story, the people talent pool, which again, I've kind of probably mentioned before, but we would not have achieved what we achieved without that fantastic team we built over that time. Um, you know, the teams are always incredibly important. And then the kind of odd one that is very interesting, um, and unique to Roland was just really the reacquisition of the trademark. Um, you know, it's probably easy to forget now, but we spent the first four years operating without the ability to use his name. We had literally a, I think actually, Aaron, uh, one of your um, other podcasts mentioned it. We we had to launch his first shop and shop with RM by the designer Roland Murray. I mean, it, it's literally insane. Yeah, but I'd I, forgotten about that. And of course that happened, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, and, and I don't, I can't think of another person that actually has been able to reacquire their the rights to them. I mean, Jill Sander doesn't have it. You know, there's, there aren't um, many examples. But the thing that was yeah. interesting, about four years that we operated without it was the power of distinctive design. And I think that's a lesson for kind of anyone to kind of learn and take note of is what we realized over that space and time is that the the designs were so distinctive and so recognizable from the outside. Mm. The label didn't necessarily matter as much. We didn't need it. And I think that's the only reason we were actually able to successfully reacquired the trademark because there was no way we could afford to pay, you know, these huge prices is that we didn't need it. It certainly helped, obviously, you know, to make life easier, but we had proven in a way that we didn't need it. And, and yeah, so I really think that says a lot about making sure that your product stands out, that it's not about the name on the label, that it's about actually the quality of the product. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. You've got to have that consistent handwriting. Yeah. Going back to what you said earlier, being known for something actually is really important because you can build everything else around that. Mm. But if you're known for one particular thing, that can carry you, it can carry you a long way. It really can. It really can. I mean, there's so many examples now of very good business strategists who who do make a product more on branding and things like that. And, you know, all respect to them. But I, I do think that there is a power in, in design at the end of the day. And certainly what interests me most about being. percent a hundred percent. There's... I think there's, uh, I'm, I come from a design background myself, so I look at all the different things that are going on in the market and can always spot a well-orchestrated, well-thought-through collection because there are just um, details and a synergy that you see that doesn't, that you, you wouldn't spot in a collection created by someone coming from a non-design background necessarily. So yeah, there's a certain level of refinement that, that somehow threads through. It's really interesting. What would you say are the big learnings that you banked along the way? Um, let me think. I mean, there's different stages like of learnings, right? I mean, there's yes. a kind of small, large business. There's different moments. I always say that there's kind of black holes in any business's journey and they happen at different stages. Um, and if you speak to people who've run and launched and operated enough businesses and grow stages, they kind of learn where these are and they try and skip past them in successive businesses. But so kind of in maybe an established company, one of the biggest challenges I see is kind of continuing to transform the business model. So how you're operating, how you're making money, you know, all of that. So, but while not losing the culture and the DNA um, that made it successful in the first place. So that, that balance, um, that's a really, really good example. And actually, it's where the corporate world sometimes struggles when things become too big, the personality and the ethos gets lost and the culture vanishes and and people notice. And uh, it doesn't necessarily benefit the, the business. Yeah, I mean, you see that with brands losing their soul. I mean, that's where the, the acquisitions of kind of what Supreme bands, you know, Birkenstocks, like some of these brands that have been able to kind of really grow to behemoth sizes, but still maintain this kind of core. I'm sure people that were there in the very early days would would not agree with that. But <laughs> from at least the consumer perspective, that that a certain element has been retained that is enough to continue allowing that brand to, to feel successful um, yeah. and gen- genuine and have, have a, I guess, a central why, you know, what it stands for. And I mean, I think throughout any business size, kind of providing a clarity around vision and the purpose of a business goals that to have that clarity allows teams to kind of be effective 
um, and to be autonomous. And that is incredibly important. And it's something I try and remember um, now in every conversation I have is to be clear about what we're aiming for and what the goal is, because it allows everyone to, to kind of come up with the right what, what do we say yes and no to, but autonomously as well, so that people can be effective and that's more fulfilling for them. I mean, plus often teams then that's when they make their best contributions is they contribute in ways that you would never necessarily think they would because you've given them the freedom and you haven't, you're not trying to micromanage anything. You're just letting them roll with things and then people come up with the magic. Exactly. I mean, it's because I think that's the point as someone who is in a leadership position is not about you having the right answers all the time. Um, and I've fallen into that trap where someone asks you a question, you give the answer. And it's not to be obstructive or not, but it's kind of, well, what do you think? You know, and letting go a little bit. So that's a really important thing. I think for founders and owners, um, one of the biggest learnings I saw was letting go, actually, you know, actually being in a position where you you are you let go to your team and even let go of the business. We had this kind of joke between Roland and I, um, where we said that the business at a certain stage, it's obviously a later stage, we're like, Roland, you know, the business isn't your baby anymore. It's like a teenager and teenagers like rebel. They have their own opinions and thoughts. And, you know, it's kind of true. Like the business has its own needs that are outside of what maybe the founder wants at a certain stage in every element. I mean, it's important as a founder owner to provide that direction and, and vision, but it's not to control every aspect of the business. Um, and that's where, when you're able to let go, I think that's where you really see businesses accelerate and grow. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that's fantastic, a fantastic insight and, you know, brilliant advice. What do you consider the most pivotal moments in your career? Well, moving to England, it was a huge change. Um, I also didn't expect to stay. It was supposed to just be, you know, that kind of study design, then move back to New York. Um, so it really kickstarted this entire second phase of my life and my adult professional career, you know, speaking only about career, but also I met my husband, I have kids, you know, it's that whole, I mean, it's my whole life changed um, really and went in moving here. So yes, moving to England, but then of course, you know, I guess that 12 year period where I was working at Roland and then leaving. So I had an amazing 12 year run, um, which was an incredible privilege and a once in a lifetime experience. Um, it, it's just kind of irreplaceable. And I learned so, so much. But yeah, I mean, that is to date, those probably would be the two most pivotal moments. Um, so starting to consult really. Yeah, absolutely. And you are now operating as a brand consultant. Where does your specialist knowledge lie? What is it that you bring to a brand? Um, I always find this one tricky. <laughs> um, we've probably covered most of it, actually, in what we've talked about, because it's really the experience and these insights um, that are so valuable. And you've you've seen the whole journey. You've done the 360. I feel like that's what you bring. That would be my kind of take on it. That's <laughs> answer, because, you know, I'm not a specialist, really. That's not the value I necessarily bring in kind of... Obviously, I have a lot of knowledge and I can offer brands a lot of advice and quick answers in certain areas just because I've done it. I've been there. But I'm really a generalist. You know, it is that 360. It is that kind of end to end experience. You know, my network as well, like being able to pull in the right expertise in the right places when it's not something that's, per, you know, personally something I can execute or whether the time and money is better spent in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, but it is that really like small to medium businesses that I understand end to end. You know, I can dig deeply into businesses, understand strengths and weaknesses, challenges, growing pains, how to get past them. That whole universe really is that. And I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't spent 12 years at Roland. Um, I remember meeting with some LVMH executives um, years ago and, you know, I was kind of almost apologizing that I hadn't skipped around in, into a bunch of, you know, three years here, three years there, five years there. And, and they were like, you shouldn't really, because you don't gain the depth of knowledge necessarily by skipping out because you're not there for the results, you That's know, fine. what works or doesn't work. And it's nothing against, you know, I think there's amazing, um, value in having moved around and had different experiences. And I'm having that now as a consultant. I really understand the strengths and weaknesses and kind of those black holes and how you pivot and navigate through them. Um, so yes, I definitely think that that is part of my knowledge. But then it's really balancing product marketing, creative strategy with commercial and business reality. It's that balance. That makes a lot of sense. 
You've been consulting with startup, emerging and established brands. What kind of businesses are you working with at the moment? Um, it's really eclectic. I know we've discussed this before. Yes. It's uh, things interesting, but I have to try and find a balance because uh, they don't always inform each other. Some of them do, some of them don't. But that's what's fun for me is to wear these different hats. So I've been working on you know, business development, commercial strategy and partnerships, licensing um, from established bridal couture business, which is fascinating because it works so differently. Bridal yes. is fun than fashion. Um, it's not a stock holding business necessarily, unless you're involved in retail, especially at the couture level as well. But so yeah, fundamentally different than fashion, which has been a learning experience. And then mentoring a, a young startup, working entirely on like limited edition drop basis. Um, so with that, it's been really interesting because I had to develop um, and help her develop a, a business model that doesn't necessarily really exist. And it was a real question mark was, can this be profitable? Because so much of the, as we know, the investment is in the sample. You know, it's it's developing that sample or that skew or that style. Yes. And what you do is you then create loads of variations on it and you extend the life as far as you can. But when you're working on kind of limited editions and drops, it's balancing um, and keeping sight of that investment side, making sure that you're selling enough. It's very strange, but super interesting in this world where we want things that are different and we want exclusivity. Um, so it's a, it's a fine balance to navigate, I would say, but very interesting. And what else? Um, I'm working with a startup um, SaaS company, which is completely new for me, but I'm on the business development and partnership side. So because they are in the, I would say, supply chain fashion space. So it's, it's really more or less a circularity platform for, let's say, positive fashion. And so my, I guess, value you could say that I add there is on the kind of brand relationships and being the consumer. Like effectively, I am the customer for that product or at least one of them. Um, but it works with suppliers, um, which is a great side of it. You know, I love the supply chain side um, and really respect that whole part of the business. And it would be nice for it to be a little bit sexier and to kind of empower that side of the business. So there's a lot of really interesting um new businesses in that space, actually, because I think it's really underdeveloped. Um, some fashion tech advisory, personal shopping space, an arts and education project. So lots of different things. Amazing. How interesting. And the perfect moment for all this, because there's so many new things happening right now in the industry. So yeah, fascinating to be able to kind of tap into them all. And as we navigate our way kind of out the other side of the pandemic, what are the main touch points that you're able to help with? Oh, let's think. I mean, pandemic specifically, as much as I'd like to think we're out of it, I know that the, you know, in some ways we're just starting to see the mid and longer term effects of it. So I don't know. I mean, I think we've been through crises before, not like this one. It's obviously very different, but I guess mm -hmm. I think back to 2008 and how we navigated some of those moments. You know, there, there have been blips in when I've been managing businesses. So I think the most important elements to establish in any business are kind of why, why are you operating? You know, why do you exist? What makes you distinctive, which we kind of touched on before? What do you stand for? I don't think you can be a brand now and not have a values led approach. I think customers want to know what you stand for and therefore why they should align with you. Um, and obviously then who is it for? So who is your customer? Um, so I think if you can develop that product market fit, and continue to pivot and stay relevant through any crisis, I mean, including this one, you're going to emerge stronger on the other side. You can't stand still. It's not a viable option. You can't just like push the pause button and kind of do business as usual because other people will be innovating. Other people will be answering these questions and digging deep, you know, and, and they will emerge out quicker and more resilient and you'll have been passed out. So it's, that's, yeah, that's probably, I guess, my, my advice. Mm, very good. Can you share one or two insights helpful for brands looking to gain and maintain traction as the digital world kind of firmly establishes itself as the number one shopping destination? I mean, I guess I look at this a little bit as a consumer um, as well. It's yeah. kind of for from brands um, and what's keeping me engaged because, um, you know, I'm not like the digital expert. Um, I, I have amazing people that I work with and, but, you know, we are all consumers to a certain extent. So I don't know, I'm constant testing and experimentation online um, surveys. Like that's the beauty of digital. I would say from like a, putting my business hat on um, is that you have 
access to all this data for benchmarking, for assessment, you should be using that. I mean, that that is literally like your guiding light. Um, and there's amazing tools now to optimize all of that, make your life easier if you're not a data, you know, analytics person. Um, but there is, I guess, the consumer hat um, is the element of discovery and play. For me, that's incredibly important and it keeps me engaged. So whatever that means to you as a brand um, is to have that digitally as well. And like service and experience, which is kind of plays into discovery and play are the differentiators for me. You know, I went to Face Gym the other day, which obviously is just, you know, facial is a pleasure to go and be back in, in that environment. But I said to them, I said, you know, it was really easy to kind of navigate the website, book the appointment. I had to reschedule a bunch of times because of meetings, but it was so easy. So that service element just is incredibly important digitally. And you see the difference in the ease where you don't notice it and things are easy and not an obstacle where as soon as you have a pain point, you've got a problem. Yeah, because people absolutely. They don't convert, you know. But th- there's the data behind all of that. That's the amazing thing is the data is there to kind of follow your customers um, and see where those pain points are. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How much has lockdown changed our shopping habits for good, do you think? I mean, it has. I mean, I, I would kind of ping this one back at you. I mean, it's it's probably changed all of our habits for good. I mean, what have you, what's changed for you? Everything has changed. No physical office anymore. And yeah. I, funnily enough, um, I would say probably a couple of years before this happened, I'd already been doing a lot of video, a lot of my stuff through video calling. Yeah. Just yeah. naturally, I don't know how, I think it evolved just through working internationally with businesses exactly. and doing using WhatsApp. And it, I just kept doing it because it was it was such a no brainer. It was so much easier. People are busy. They're at work. They need to talk to you. So yeah, we would just do it like that. So I think yeah, huge amounts, huge amounts have changed. I think it is. I think it has changed our habits. I think we want ease and seamlessness. I think you know I've been going out as you have you for the last couple of weeks and having meetings, and it is lovely to see people face to face. But being able to have a mixture of both physical and digital definitely makes life much easier not having to commute um having that mixture being able to choose and I've, I've certainly heard talking to people across the industry they've said the same thing they want the choice um you know there may be weeks where they need to be in the office there may be weeks where they need to be more home-based they want the the choice to be able to make that decision they want that autonomy and large-scale businesses in particular who are like, what do we do? Do we get everyone back in? They've been asking this of their teams, what do you want? And people have been saying, we want the we want the choice you to trust that we can get things done if we're at home. And perhaps we actually need that time out of the buzz of the office, particularly if we're working on something that needs just dedicated concentration. So, yeah, really kind of interesting feedback. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I was contacted with mine who's at a major department store and they were saying very similarly that they're actually, I think, based on uh, employee feedback, they're actually setting up like localized hubs. So like mini hubs around, I mean, obviously based on where their employees are, you know, mm-hmm. there, but they're going to have these like little hotspots where um, people can work from and not need to come into central London, which is interesting. And I think that kind of pairs with, you know, this localization. So I think there is both in manufacturing, but also in shopping, there is, a, we've seen this shift um, in terms of localization. Um, and I think that's always a good thing. You know, I think a lot of times things got too consolidated on, you know, one main high street and it also got gentrified where it was all big businesses. Um, so I think seeing this return, I mean, how many businesses were launched? It, it, I can't remember the stat, but it's something huge. like thousand, a huge amount of businesses. Have. So I think that as a consumer, I love um, uniqueness and I love having a choice and, and that curation. Um, so that's a, all really positive changes for me. I think, I mean, there's this great app um, or I guess service app. I don't really know how to categorize it, but called Near Street that um, a, a friend of mine um, was a founder of. And they grew like exponentially during lockdown and they were producing really interesting data reports. What they do is they work with any inventory that exists, you know, any shop that has inventory. And when you Google it, like, so when you search it, you find out, where it is. So like how, what's your nearest jug of organic milk in terms of groceries, or it could be, you know, jeans or a certain brand of jeans. And it literally pops up and it it shows you what's in stock so that 
before you, that you know, when you're, when you, if you are going to make that effort to go out and do whatever you're going to do and shop or commute or whatever, you know, what you're going to find on the other side. And that's, I mean, super interesting, but they've seen that desire where people want to know in advance that it's worth going out, um, which comes back to choice. It's, we don't, we want to be more efficient. We don't, we, uh, that, that mentality of why, what you spend your time on and why has fundamentally changed. Um, Yeah. Efficiency, I think has, you know, we're all time poor and people want to make sure they're using their time wisely. So if we've got more tools to help us do that, happy days. Uh, Yeah. But go in and you do want to shop, you want an experience and you want it to be interesting. I mean, that's where, um, you know, I mean, we can probably talk about this later, but like Browns and, and the new store that they've opened on Brook Street is really interesting. Exactly, exactly. It's about the experience. Will bricks and mortar stores become even more experiential in their approach to serving and enticing their customers? Because you've got a lot of variations across bricks and mortar. We're seeing the demise of these big retailers and the bigger department stores, excluding obviously the the icons like Selfridges and Harrods, who I have to say, I walked, I told you this, I walked into Selfridges um, soon after um, lockdown was eased and um, it was literally like nothing had ever happened. I was like, wow, (laughs) where did all these Chinese tourists come from? (laughs) It was incredible. And it was amazing to see and just so alien to be back in the buzz of that. It was incredible. So yeah, what do you think is is the future there? Well, I'm sure Selfridges were very happy on that day. I hope so. <laughs> I've seen it less busy, if I'm being honest, on some of the days that I've been in. But I think Selfridges is a good example because um, Selfridges hasn't maintained their relevancy by standing still. Um, you know, they've just launched, um, they have a wedding license now. Mm. They have a um, this amazing kind of, I would say, would you say drag performer? Yeah, I, I hope I'm not saying that wrong, but like Johnny Wu, this amazing, you know, talent can can be your efficient, like all, mm-hmm. all of these things um, are what keeps them relevant. You know, Selfridges is very focused on um, experience and, you know, even rental. I think they've launched full-time rental now and um, they had done some trials previously with, with some of the rental companies that are around and, and they're doing that full-time now. So I think that, yes, it is more experiential and we will see that shift. We are seeing that shift. What I mentioned before, I have launched a new store um, on Brook Street and a good friend of mine, Suzanne Tidefrader, was involved in that. Um, and, and really, that's a very good example, you know, where they have incorporated so many different elements of experience um, and curation as well, you know, coming back to your call out about choice. So it's actually being more specialized. It's not doing everything, serving everything, having all the stock, you know, in central London available. It's really about going in to see a curation, to see a point of view, to see art, to see to have food, you know, so all, all of those elements are things that Browns have incorporated. So I think it's a very good example. And you see a clustering of experiences. So it's not just one experience or one type of experience. It's many different experiences that you can tap into depending on your personality, you know. So I think that Browns has obviously listened to who their customer is and they've curated a series of experiences, events, etc., based on their audience and their customer. So they're selling clothes, shoes, jewelry, but alongside tattoo artists, you know, hair and makeup, the kind of artistic installations. And so I do think that that is the future, the future and the present, really. Yeah, absolutely. And who would be on your consultancy wish list? Oh, I mean, that's a tricky one because some of them, I think, you know, I'm already working with some people that I I find really engaging um, and, and innovative. But I mean, the themes, I guess, maybe, or types of businesses are... Anyone who is working on sustainable innovation, I, ju- I just, I mean, I can't imagine launching a brand today or a new product line without that in mind. Absolutely. Um, are obviously innovators within that space where it goes deeper than just, you know, your sourcing strategy. Um, I mean, Pangea is um, a really interesting one, which, you know, I think has been very visible over the lockdown period, but mm. I first saw their flower down um, I guess, innovation. Um, I think they license some of those things from, from the people who developed them. But um, it's, you know, to see genuine innovation with the idea of flower waste becoming, you know, an animal alternative product, like is, is amazing. Um, and that it's effective, you know, that's not just kind of lip service, that it actually really performs, um, is fascinating. Digital marketplaces, but in new categories. So there's a 
a jewelry marketplace called Fine Matter that I think is really, you know, beautifully curated, very interesting in focusing on a certain area. Personally, probably one of my top um, areas of interest is new modes of consumption. So the rental resale market. Um, I'm kind of a vintage queen. I've always done that since I was real, really young growing up in LA. So I see the kind of commercialization of that and it becoming really a mass kind of access um, is really interesting. So I'm not working in that area. I'd be very interested if anyone wants to call me to uh, to work in that area. And then I think I mentioned it before, but the kind of maybe less sexy side of fashion is the kind of supply chain. And I think there's been a lot, a lot less innovation in that area. So um, there's some amazing companies digitizing circularity, digitizing products. So um, like Supply Compass, um, the Queen of Raw, Eon are all doing really great work in that area. Um, so yeah, loads of amazing brands and, and services. It is fascinating watching what's going on. It's, uh, it's, it's yeah. an exciting time to be in fashion, that's for sure. I mean, are there brands that you would love to work with? Gosh, yes. I'm very much aligned with yourself okay. in also wanting to work with um, the sustainable brands that have got a sustainable message. Um, that have that are on a mission. Uh, my skills and my knowledge is it comes into its own when I'm working with people. We share a vision, and they go right. I need someone to do this. Can you find them? And off I go. It's bit I enjoy is figuring out the job description, putting that together for them, agreeing it, getting going with it, and encompassing uh, sort of it comes back to everything you said having that strong vision Mm -hmm. and so the growing brands the people that are looking to scale or they've just started and they're missing something they've got a bit of money behind them but they need to fill a particular skill set and it's holding them back and not doing so that's where I can really help and find people that can genuinely come in and be a part of that so it's difficult to name names because there's so many gorgeous brands out there touch on a really good point, which is, is where you add value and you find that really rewarding. And I mean, I think that's the thing where there's obviously brands that, and, and companies that are really interesting, but you need to be able to add value to them. You know, if they already have a, a version of you or, you know, there needs to be that need there where you can really add value. Otherwise it's not. A hundred percent. And I think the beauty in what I bring is objectivity. When you're an external partner they can dip in and dip out with you. And there's a really big difference when you're not the brand and you're the person working on behalf of a brand. You can be very objective in how you approach the market. Um, And I I see things and discover things along the way within that journey. People will share stuff with me that they wouldn't share with the brand themselves. So I think they end up with a much better quality of person. It's a good way of not kind of making a hire and then finding out three, six, 12 months later that, oh, it's not quite the right fit for the person, for the brand. So I can circumnavigate that very effectively. So yeah, that's the bit I love to do. And working with businesses that don't have the resources in-house and sometimes working with ones that do. Um, Sometimes people, they'll be like, we need an external person. So that's kind of how it works for me. But they have to be a business on a mission. They have to be, there has to be that sustainability angle or someone looking to bring that in and get that going. Um, Then I can, I can call on my vast network and find them the right person. So uh, but, you know, I work across the board within fashion, across all the major areas, so I can pretty much do anything. And that's the excitement of what I do. If you had to name your biggest achievement so far, I know there's been lots, but what would be your greatest achievement if you had to name something? I mean, it's kind of a strange one because I, I guess I don't have this single moment where I'm just like, oh, that that's because it's still in progress. So I guess I don't see yeah. it. But you know, honestly, it's that personal fulfillment and balance. And, you know, maybe it's in, you know, an older age thing, Um, but genuinely understanding and believing, believing, not just, you know, saying it, but actually believing that the work that you do doesn't define you, that you define your work through the choices that you make and what you choose to involve yourself with. And that's, that to me, that shift is is a big difference it makes you look at the type of work that you do differently and it's good to have that perspective absolutely very much so 
What has been the biggest challenge in your career, but also a great learning opportunity? You're going to laugh. <laughs> so a consultant CEO I had really early in my career. Um, I mean, there's the kind of nicer version of this and then there's the reality. But he basically told me that working in a kind of unstructured, idiosyncratic environment, which like all small businesses are, like that's the reality. They're not, they're all different and unique in their own way. That it would create unique challenges. I'm being polite here. In my career later, like to move past. Because, you know, bad habits, like you're, you're so, I think being young and being in, you know, an environment and the longer you are, you're more formed by that particular environment, um, however unusual it may be. And, um, and he couldn't have been more right, you know, so as cheesy as it sounds, I think the biggest challenge is always ourselves, really, and within an environment. And that is a constant learning opportunity. So it's never done. I mean, in general, I try and control, I try and focus on what I can have an impact on rather than things outside of my control. Um, so I try not to stress about things that aren't something I can, yeah have an impact on but yeah it's definitely me is what I would say is the biggest challenge um, but also the biggest opportunity um yeah lifelong learning I love that I think that's such a brilliant way of looking at things because we so often get in our own way and I just think it, it is it's it's our ability to adapt and learn and reinvent and uh, learn from others and there's so many elements to that it's it's a great great insight to share so thank you for that what have you enjoyed most about working as a consultant um I always have to say the variety really obviously that may be unique to me um just because of wearing one hat for so many years it's refreshing to just be in a position to test again kind of what I enjoy where I can be most effective and have an impact yeah and to kind of stretch that a little bit you know it's it's also different contributing individually rather than as part of a collective team. Obviously, I still leverage my network and do contribute in that way. But, you know, I am an external consultant, so I'm not in-house. It is different. Kind of has highlighted for me, again, to that previous point, where my comfort zone is, because there are things that, you know, I haven't necessarily personally executed in a long time. And I have to kind of stretch and improve myself um, and, and kind of go, nope, you just got to push through it um, and get it done. And even if, you know, yeah, you haven't done that in a couple of years, you know, so it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think there's also that reclaiming my schedule and the independence, um, because in a larger company, especially, um, you can get pulled in so many different directions, competing interests, you know, your time doesn't feel like it's your own. And I certainly in the later years of working at Roland had to really structure my time to make sure that I carved out moments where I could really focus on the strategy or, or you know, the contribution I individually needed to make. And it was a struggle. So it is a, a kind of a nice side of, of consulting to really truly have ownership over your schedule. Yeah, absolutely. What are your aspirations and goals for 2021? I think we're, we're halfway through already. We are halfway through. It's incredible. I think first and foremost, um, which probably isn't a goal, but um, I just want to enjoy the return to kind of semblance of normality. I've got reservations lined up at my favorite restaurants, you know, planning some dreamy trips, hopefully. But yeah, of course I have goals, but they're not really for this year per se. I mean, they're fairly simple. They relate to kind of things about like nourishing kind of personal professional relationships because those are incredibly important and fulfilling, you know, financial health which sounds boring. I sound like my father, but it's really important. Um, but also coming back to that cont continuous learning and growth, um, which is also really important. But yeah, I mean, it's essential to have, to achieving any of those goals is to basically be able to focus on optimizing my schedule and my habits to be productive. Um, and then do consistently. So I try, I read this book called like 12, 12 week year. And it really is focusing on kind of having, breaking down your goals into kind of your larger goals into digestible actions, but also working on a much shorter time frame so that you don't, I mean, I, I'm certainly in business and I'm sure you'll have seen this. You would end up in a point like year end, whatever your year end is, where people are like rushing to hit their targets and it's really not helpful. And you're like, well, if you spent all year kind of rushing or really focused on achieving that like specific goal, you wouldn't, well, one, we would either achieve a lot more, um, you know, or, so it's like these short sprints, I think, is kind of what I um, aspire to and try and focus my time. But it's easier said than done, obviously. Mm. 
you know, there's overall is paying attention to the kind of broader meaning of what I'm engaged in and trying to balance, you know, the things I genuinely enjoy or am passionate about with my intelligence, you know, and my, my brain. And normally that creates the best outcomes or the greatest impact. So that's always the goal. And I don't think it will really change. It's just achieving it and keeping that focus. Yeah, no, I completely understand. It's, uh, it's the age old challenge this. So, um, and it all, it's all impacted by what's going on around you and you can only have control a certain amount. So that's important to remember, I think as well, is just the reason that you might like this kind of, I, I think this old fashioned definition of like success, failure, achievement. Um, I was also introduced to this idea of kind of like process measurement where, you know, you could do all the things you're meant to do, but not achieve the final out like the, it does, the result that you wanted didn't happen and sometimes you have to look at the process and kind of say well you know was there something like that went wrong or you know that where the customer turned a different way like it's not always the end result and I think sometimes we're too end result focused rather than actually focusing on all those little things that you do to get there yeah the journey absolutely yeah. the journey is just as important for sure and that leads us to my closing question if you could hire any three people in the world to lend their expertise to your consultancy who would you choose and why um yeah uh I mean such a big question I think you know we we have mentors maybe um in you know over the course of our career or people we really rely on or inspired by and I guess that's probably you know the people who come kind of top of mind to me are a good friend of mine and uh um who's like ex-Christian Louboutin and her journey kind of always seems um a few years ahead of mine and she's always been a kind of great resource for me um in my journey um she's a great friend um very kind and attentive but I've always enjoyed I mean I have worked with her as well once she left Louboutin as a consultant I worked we collaborated sometimes at Louboutin so she's someone I have worked with and I've always really enjoyed it. And I've always leapt at the opportunity to work with her in any capacity. I mean, but even when it's not me working with her one-on-one, I mean, she's retrained. She still does her brand in luxury consulting, but she does guided meditations. She teaches yoga. I mean, she has her own newsletters and podcasts, like out of the clouds. Like it's, so even if I don't have her all the time, um, she's based in Geneva now, I have all these like resources that she's created around her that are incredibly inspiring um, and provide a lot of guidance. So she's always come up with the best recommendations. So it's, it's yeah, all of that really. Um, she's amazing. Uh, Anne Mullethaller. Um, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. Apologies, Anne. Yeah, she's amazing. And yeah, a great mentor and kind of friend to me. Who else? I mean, Suzanne Teichfrader, um, who I think I mentioned previously, is really an icon within the industry. Um, she worked at like Harrods, Selfridges, uh, Victoria Beckham, Farfetch, and you know, on that recent Browns project at Brook Street. And I worked with, I was lucky enough to work with Suzanne at um, Roland Murray in the early days. And we've kept in touch ever since. So she's a great ally. And, and again, let me say constant inspiration, but I, I just really value her opinion and her perspective on industry and kind of life. And um, we're very in line. So I've always said to her, I'd love to, to work with her again. Um, so in any capacity, that would be lovely. And then I guess the only other one is just really a, basically a kind of non-living one. Um, but there's these designers, Charles and Ray Eames. Um, I don't know if, you, if you're aware of them, but they're kind of designers, architects. It was a, a couple. And um, they have this amazing case study house in, in California that is just like, oh, stunning. Um, but they have this grounding principle um, that I do quote a lot. Um, and it's something that's really a foundation, I guess you could say a guiding principle for me. And they basically said, that this role of the architect or designer is that of a very good, thoughtful host, all of whose energy goes into trying to anticipate the needs of his guests. Um, those who enter the building use their objects, and they think it's this essential ingredient, right, of designing building or object. And to me, it's just remains so important, this idea of like take as a designer or running a business, thinking of I'm the host, and how am I serving my client? You know, serving the customer providing like functional, useful product and engaging with your audience, you know, because that's when you think of throwing a dinner party or being a host, like that's what it is. It's you're bringing something into your space. So I just, for me, if I had the chance to kind of in any way go back and engage with them, I just think one, the product they've done is iconic, but it all comes from this kind of 
guiding principle. And it's something that I've, I guess, adopted. Um, so I have to say them as well. I think that's a brilliant example. And I think our lives are about service. You know, I think the pandemic has shown us that. If there's yeah. one lesson to come out of the pandemic, it's it's service. We're here to serve one another. And the more effectively and positively we do that, the greater our lives are and the greater we make the lives of others. So I think it's a brilliant note on which to finish. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's I like sharing it. It's so. wonderful. I just think it really, yeah. It really captures, I can visualize it and it makes it easier for me. So, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for being my guest today. Thank you, Fiona. Michelle's experience has been both educational and insightful. After we paused the recording, we got chatting about hiring and the importance of asking new hires of any level to write down their initial take on things before they get too absorbed in the role, as there are often really interesting observations. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with another inspirational individual. And if you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes where you'll get to hear firsthand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries.